Well, hello and welcome to episode 75 of the Payers and Players podcast. My name's Robert. I'm here with Scott and Scott will introduce our guest for this episode. Go ahead, Scott. Well, welcome, welcome back. We are happy to welcome back one of our favorite all-time guests, TJ Pura. We've had TJ on the, on the podcast now three times, episodes 11, 50, and 68. So this is number 75. So we're trying to get him in rhythm and get uh, keep this going. But uh, we, we, last time we talked to TJ, he was working in finance, and now he's the volunteer assistant coach at his alma mater, Duke. So I want to understand sort of how you got back into coaching, TJ. Yeah, uh, it's amazing how much things have changed since we last talked. I think it was 9.30 p.m. I was in my office still yeah. uh, in New York City, and now I'm sitting in Durham, North Carolina, getting ready to head up to Charlottesville tomorrow for a Sweet 16 match. Um, yeah, a bit of a whirlwind, I guess, to to bring you guys back from from banking. I, you know, I, I did that to be in social impact and always thought I wanted to go into business, but work for a business or um, businesses that do something positive for the world. And that ultimately led me to this uh, large residential solar company called SunPower. I was doing very well there, like doing kind of mergers and acquisitions and capital markets work and had good kind of C-suite exposure and everything on paper was great. Um, but like one day I just was sitting down at my computer uh, on a Monday morning and I was like, you know what? This just isn't me. Um, sitting behind a desk was <clears throat> a bit too impersonal for me. I feel like, you know, I love and thrive in face-to-face -face settings. And I think also a big part of me felt like you know, performance and pushing the limit and sports and, and what that requires and being great or being a champion. I was like, just kind of call my name in one way or another. Um, so that was April, 2022. I phoned up my good buddy and now top 20 tennis player, Tommy Paul, and was like TP, um, having a bit of a come to Jesus moment here. Um, you know, I want to get back into sports and performance in, in one way, you know, I was kind of kicking around the idea of really diving deep in psychology and um, and physio and uh, like, you know, physiology at the same time. And I was like, look, if I could help you out five, 10 percent, um, I'd love to do that. And he was like, look, man, you know, come aboard for a bit. Come help me out, um, you know, sort of on the mental side. And then, you know, was doing some sort of innovative certifications and training and um, neuroscience based movement and injury prevention and was kind of showing him some of the more like sciencey kind of cool stuff that's going around. And, um, you know, basically worked with Tommy for like three months or so. And, um, he was struggling. We were in Atlanta. He was struggling with like a pretty bad elbow injury. And, you know, I was like his physio, which, you know, felt kind of silly because I wasn't really entirely, uh, ready for that role. And, um, you know, at, at the time his elbow started getting worse and, you know, we sat down and we were like, look, man, you know, I think the, the idea here was good long-term. I don't think I'm ready to help you with what you need right now. Like you need a, a full pro. And, um, you know, he was like, look, I, I totally get it. I hope we can work in the future, but, um, you know, right now I definitely, I need someone with a little bit more, um, you know, a few more years under the, under his belt. So, it just so happened to be that like a week before Ramsey called me and was like, Hey, I know you re relocated back to Durham from Austin after moving jobs. And, um, you know, I wonder if you want to be my volunteer. And I was like, look, I'd love to, but I'm going to be traveling a ton with Tommy. 
And then about a week later, that was that was different. I wasn't going to be on the road with Tommy, and I called up Ramsey, and I said, "Hey, you know, I'd love to, I'd love to help out the team." And uh, that was late August, and you know, I've been full time volunteer. Um, you know, show up to every practice, every lift, every conditioning session, and um, you know, every obviously dual match, and I've been traveling to tournaments both in the fall and obviously all the dual matches in the spring, and it's. It's been the most incredible, you know, eight months that I can think of. And I think that coming out of this year, I'm like, I want to be a college tennis coach. Um, and I'm, I'm firmly, firmly in it. Um, so a lot of things have, have changed, but it's been uh, an incredible experience. Well, I think you answered Scott's second question on the list. Uh, <laughs> ultimately, is your goal to become a head coach in college? I mean... And, and let- and let me say this. I hope your answer is yes, because both of us have high school freshmen and we sure <laughs> would love for them to play for you. Oh, man. You know, I think uh, I think that's the ultimate goal um, as I see it right now. But, um, you know, I'm just looking I'm just really looking in the short term. Um, you know, we got a big match coming up on Saturday against UVA and just trying to get the guys prepared. But for sure, long term, I, I would love that. Um but really right now, it's not about the hierarchy to me. I don't care being a volunteer. You know, I tell so many people I've never made zero dollars and been so happy going from <laughs> making six figures. And it's like, uh, you just can't put a price on helping people um, in a personal way. And sometimes that's with organization. Sometimes a lot of times that's with the mental side. Sometimes it's with building good habits. And, you know, what I've found is I think when you invest and you show time and energy and thoughtfulness and preparation for your players, they're going to return the favor. And then some, you know, they're going to, they'll run a mile for you. Um, if you show that, you know, you're going to give them a hundred yards, um, uh, and you know, just, just care about them. So ultimately I'd, I'd love to be a head coach, but, um, you know, right now I'm just trying to do, do my job the best I can day in, day out. Well, like I said, I've, I've, uh, Happened to see a few of you guys' matches this year. You guys came to Louisville. I happened to be in uh, Chapel Hill during the, the ACC tournament and saw a couple of you guys' matches there. And, you know, it's, it's just amazing just the passion that you do bring to the team and the energy that you, you, you the, the, that you bring. You know, it was like before, I can't think, think again, before the match against Wake, I was watching, and, you know, you guys do your chant, you know, before the match. And I was thinking to myself, I bet you TJ wishes he was in the middle of that, leading the chant, but I know he can't. He's the assistant. Then I looked down there, and who's in the middle? But you're in the middle leading the chant. So <laughs> it was awesome to see you do that. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's uh, – I think Peter Smith said this on a podcast with my former assistant coach, Jonathan Stokey, but, you know, he, he said at USC he always tried to create a fun environment. And, you know, at the end of the day – tennis is a sport. It's not life or death. I think a lot of guys, sometimes it feels like a bit more life or death than it needs to be, but ultimately it's a privilege and we're really lucky to be doing what we're doing. So I try to keep that perspective every day. I come in with a smile on my face I make jokes. I'm very loud and energetic and get fired up and you can hear me running drills from halfway across the campus. And, um, you know, it's, it's a beautiful thing to be energized about. And I think these guys like, like I said, they, they reciprocate it if they see that you really care and that you're invested. And, um, you know, it's just been such a joy um, and so fulfilling seeing my players, each and every one of them in their own ways, grow and overcome certain hurdles. Um, so, 
yeah, you know, that, that fire is always there. I think at the beginning of the champ, we'll see if I pass if for next year, I get the nod again for the circle, but uh, it's been really fun. I think they agree. Uh, I do have the loudest voice uh, out of the group. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And like I say, if there was an award for a volunteer assistant coach of the year, I'm sure that you'd be in the very top of the list because you've done a great job in, in, in all, in all theory. In all seriousness, you have done an, an amazing job, and I think Ramsey really appreciates and values what you bring because, like, you know, for, for people that aren't familiar, when um, Duke played at Louisville, they played indoors, and the setup there is you have three courts on one side, three courts on the other side, and there's a lobby in between. And so, you know, with with three co- with three courts and three coaches, uh, or I'm sorry, six six courts with three coaches, but only two can be on one side and one can be on the other. Ramsey had you on on courts two, four, and six by yourself, running those courts, and those are the, those that those are the matches that clinched for Duke. So I thought that was a really um, impressive level of um, responsibility that he he entrusted you with. So I think that that speaks volume for what he thinks of you and and the job that you do. Well, I appreciate that, Scott. And you know, I mean, I honestly I owe everything to Ramsey both at the beginning for recruiting me and bringing me to Duke. And that has been the greatest opportunity I've ever been afforded in my life. And we had an incredible and very, you know, naturally evolving coach player relationship. Um, And then this professional relationship we've had where we're peers. I mean, Ramsey is the best boss out there. He empowers both Machek and I and listens to, you know, wants our thoughts and asks where our head's at and really just has no ego. And we're all like rowing the boat in the same direction. And we understand that, you know, the three of us on the same page is a lot better than, you know, the three of us moving in, moving in different directions. And I think, you know, he's got very, you know, good strengths that I don't have and, and um, you know, vice versa. There are certain things that um, I may be more adept to handle than him. And, and we just try to, you know, match each other's strengths and um, cover each other's blind spots and, I, I really can't say <laughs> enough positive things about Ramsey. Um, doesn't have a bad bone in his body. He's so thoughtful. He's so positive. Um, and he's just a pleasure to work with every day. And I just feel so lucky um, to be able to blossom under his kind of tutelage um, and, and to be given the, the latitude that I am as a volunteer assistant in his first season. Because um, I think a lot of coaches might not listen to, to what I have to say and Ramsey certainly does, and and I couldn't be more appreciative of that. Well, it's you know it's always good to work with a leader who, with an, a young up and comer who's full of energy, they're willing to listen to, um, and that kind of goes into this next question. What's something that you realize that coaches do that as a player you didn't understand or didn't realize or never thought of? But now as a coach, you're doing it, and you're like, oh, now I see why they were doing that. I know for me yeah. as a coach. I was very, I didn't realize how much time the coaches put in. You know, I didn't mm-hmm. realize they were there when I showed up. They were there when I left. And I just, I didn't realize how much time from their family they were spending. But what's something that you think of that you just didn't realize as a player that now as a coach, you do realize? Yeah, um, I, I would say it relates to communication in how many different ways as a coach can you try to say the same thing, just slightly different with the hope that it sticks with the player because, you know, there's, there's cues that coaches have in their head and ways that they see things. And then there's ways that players 
feel and interpret their own cues and, and what you're saying. And they kind of translate it or internalize it. And ultimately you want to kind of do that homework in advance. So you guys are on the same page. So you're speaking to them in their language. And I think for me as a coach, I've, I've realized, um, you know, you, the, the time that you take to try to learn each player's style and both how they like to be coached, how they like to be spoken to, how they like to be addressed or, or critiqued. Um, and just the, yeah, like the, the amount of thought that just goes into language, because ultimately that's what a coach does. It's all comes down to, to language and, and then action too. You know, I mean, I like to not only say the right thing, but do the right thing as well. And if they see me hitting balls, damn well, no, I'm going to have a low base. I'm going to move my feet. I'm going to get it where I want. And I'm going to be having my weight forward and I'm going to be hitting it to a good target and accelerating. Maybe it's not the prettiest shots out there or the fastest ones, but I'm going to control what I can control. And, you know, same thing today. I lost a slice to slice, like 95 shot rally with Michael Heller, son of a gun. And, uh, you know, lose that point. It's heartbreaking. And I just, Hey, I'm like, I got to set the right example mentally. Just no reaction. Take the hat off, shake the hand. Hey, great plan. Too good. And, uh, you know, so, so ultimately I, I think it's, uh, it's language and, and you got to learn your players ways and, and that takes time. And I think that's, uh, it, it, it takes time because it, it is difficult and ultimately whatever's difficult pays dividends. What, so to follow up on that then, as a player, what's something that that you that coaches tried to get across to you that you just wouldn't listen to that now as a coach you're like, dang, I wish I'd listened to that. Yeah. Um, you know, I would say one thing is like it took me a little while in college to really embrace my most effective game style. And I think that especially I, I had a little bit of a mental block as it related to my backhand. And anyone that <laughs> has played me can attest to that. Um, they probably tried to go high to my backhand. And a lot of times that that worked really well. And it wasn't until, you know, I would kind of like on match day, just uh, get in my head about like, how's my top spin backhand feeling? And that was like the one kind of hole at times in my game. And I would obsess over it. And now, you know, it wasn't until my senior year, Jonathan Stokey spoke to me and he was like, you know how many top spin backhands you hit in a match? Like eight, you know, he's like, do you just, just get more forehands? And if it comes to your backhand, hit your great slice backhand cross court and then get another forehand. And I was like, really? Like that? You don't think people are going to attack my slice? They're like, it, you can't, it's just low, like just hit your slice. And I was like, wow, like that seems so petty in a way. But I started doing it and it was so effective. And I just think that, you know, I, I see that with our players where, they, look, they want to return on top of the baseline and come into the net. And look, guys have good serves these days. And if you watch the pros on clay or on hardcore, you got the top players in the world returning second serves from 10 feet, 12 feet behind the baseline, ripping it and then coming up to the baseline. So it's kind of like trying to match that picture of perfect tennis in your head of what your game looks like to also the reality of like, how are you actually winning points? And sometimes there's a gap there. And I think, you know, you need to bridge that gap. So that was something that as a player, it took me a little while to recognize, like, how do I really want to win points? And then once I committed to that and I was on the same page with that, with my coaches um, kind of took off. And I, and I wish I did that earlier. didn't wait till my senior year to, yeah. to do that. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, Jonathan Stokey, he's, he's 
a really good tennis brain. I've listened to his podcast a lot and learned mm -hmm. a lot from him. So you're fortunate to have him as an assistant coach during your playing days. That's awesome. Um, totally. So I'm Stokey curious. Man. Yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I just said Stokey was the man. In case he ever listened <laughs> to this, he knows it. So. Yeah. yeah. So hey, I'm curious. You know, just you know how how this position works. You know, by definition, volunteer assistant. You alluded to it. Like you're not getting paid. Um, so what expect are there limits on what how much time you can spend? Are there expectations that you know you have things going on outside of tennis or just give me an example or, or sort of just explain sort of the role of a volunteer assistant and how it might be different than say maybe the the, the normal assistant coach? Sure, sure. So you know I think the volunteer assistant role is probably the one that changes the most from university to university and that's just based on, how much time the coach has to give to the program and sort of what the agreement is between them and the head coach of that time commitment. Um, you know, I think in a lot of cases you have a volunteer assistant who's in, you know, doing an MBA and he's there when he can sit in on weekends or he played for the school and he has a, you know, full-time job and family, but he comes out um, for practices here and there, or, you know, at a lot of the bigger programs, you have full-time volunteers who are trying to get into coaching and, you know, are expected to be there all the time. Um, and that's, that's definitely the setup that Ramsey and I have, um, you know, the, I don't think there's really many restrictions as, as far as time that you can spend with the player. Um, there's not a whole lot of paperwork. I think I just signed a waiver day one that said, Hey, if anything happens to me on Duke's campus, you know, <laughs> Duke isn't liable, uh, which I could, I can sleep at night knowing I signed my life away to Duke. Um, I'm good with that, but, um, <laughs> you know, for me, typical day. So, so I'm full time. So I work, you know, the, the, definitely, I don't, I don't cover a lot of the administrate, uh, you know, the administrative or the organizational or the managerial sides that Ramsey and Machek touch a lot closer than I do. But in terms of individuals, in terms of team practices, conditioning, watching film, preparing for matches, travel, all that stuff is, is firmly in my court. So um, what I do is in the mornings, typically have individuals with the guys uh, for two hours or so. I'll have a break at lunch, come back for team practice. And then in the evening, I'll teach some private lessons uh, on the, you know, uh, on the tennis court, or I'll um, do some private personal training uh, in the gym, but I've kind of had to find my own clients um, to, to, to work privately with in order to, in order to pay the bills. I mean, all I can think is how lucky are the players on the team, though, that you're getting to provide some privates with them or some one-on-ones with them. And then the people in the community that you're able to provide some of those players in the community. I know if we live close by, we'd definitely hit you up. That would be that would be awesome. Thanks for walking through that. And I thought that was a great question by Scott. Um, but I, I also have wondered, being a coach, what do you think the most difficult part of being a coach is? Maybe something you didn't even think about was hard. Yeah, it's um, a great question. I think the most difficult part of being a coach is when you when you know what a player has to do to to improve or move forward, but you know that it's that there's certain blockage right now that you need to work through, and you know, just that it's not an overnight fix 
in most cases and you can't just say the right thing and all of a sudden ta-da you know the the solution is there you need to understand what the player um you know needs to improve upon i think speak to them about it be on the exact same page as them and then work with them on it in in kind of their style right you need to meet them halfway and that if a player isn't understanding something that you're telling them over and over and over, hey, you need to look yourself in the mirror and change the way that you're, you know, change the messaging, right? Because clearly, like, the the, the player's got enough to worry about with the, with the tennis. It's, in my opinion, it's on the coach to kind of problem solve and figure out how can you get the player to do what you envision that they need to do. Um, so just, like, working through that disconnect in that gray area and – you know, some things definitely work faster than others, but you need to be intentional about it. You need to set plans. And I think that if there's um, not a lot of, you know, direction or, or buy-in um, or just open lines of communication, it, it's hard to accomplish what, what you want to accomplish um, in your mind. Yeah, I think that's what separates re- just coaches from really good coaches. Right. I mean, it, the reality is, is at the end of a, say, a football game, nobody cares how much talent the head coach has. They care what the scoreboard says. Mm-hmm. And so as a coach, your job is to get them to perform and do that in whatever way you have to do it. And so the, to me, the best coaches are the ones that do whatever has to be done to get their players to perform. And that's basically what you were saying. I mean, that's a really hard thing to do. It's an easy thing to say because so many players are different. One player to perform requires one thing and another requires another. Right. And you saying it is not your job. You getting them to do it, that's your job. And right. that's a really, really hard thing. So to that point, when you were a player, uh, what have you learned from Ramsey that as a player you didn't know, but now he's taught you and you, you just, you didn't realize it while you were a player. That's a that's a really good question. Um, and, and by the way, Scott wrote all these questions. I'm just reading his questions. So good on Scott for such yeah. a question writing. Scott, man, you you asked the hard hitters. Um, can you can you repeat the question one more time? Yeah, I mean, you so you played for Ramsey. He yeah. taught you a lot. But yeah. what's something you've learned from him now as a coach that, as a player, you just you didn't consume. And now as a coach, you, yeah. you learned it from him. You're like, man, I wish I'd have been listening when he was coaching me as a player. Yeah. You know, I think that um, one thing I've learned from Ramsey this year is just like, or I've observed that I don't think I fully appreciated as a player is just how much thought and energy he's putting into like how the day went and how each player is doing. And like we recap almost every practice, you know, and, and like we're um, we're always looking at the guys who like could have been better and figuring out ways to like get them going. And I don't think I always I always appreciated like how much effort he put into that across the board. Um, that so, I do so now. TG, expand on that a little bit. So when you say you you recap the practices, so like after the practice, you know, the players are done; they're in the shower stretching and whatnot, do you guys get together as a, as a coaching team and, you know, sort of break down each guy? Hey, he did well this – he did this well today. 
that didn't really stick with that guy. We need to, you know, do something more with him. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, I would say exactly. Like it's informal, you know, maybe practice finishes, the guys are changing and, and going over to the weight room and we'll walk over to the weight room, the two of us and, or, you know, the three of us and just have a, have a chat about, Hey, you know, what do we think of the day generally? And then, you know, zero in on a few guys that we felt like could have been a little bit better. And, you know, how do we, what are we going to do tomorrow? You know, why do we think, what, what was the root cause? Um, you know, versus maybe as a player, you think that like, oh, it's just, it's just a, you know, a practice like Ramsey's not really, um, you know, maybe putting like not, not putting a lot of thought, but how much value is he attaching to that practice? But like a lot of value, you know, gets attached to each practice. And I think as a player, you're more likely to create excuses or reasons that you might not be at your best or, you know, whether it's an exam or, you know, a girlfriend or, you know, reasons that, that just you like just excuses that you make. And uh, I know I did it as a player at times. And, you know, as a coach, I think you just like practice is, is what you got. Um, and that's ultimately what prepares you for the match day where you can kind of let it all fly. So, you know, I, I just, I think that the amount that, 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 the coaching staff now and, and that Ramsey just like we talk about practice and we talk about the guys in depth outside of, you know, kind of informally outside of practice hours and on court hours. Um, I definitely didn't, didn't fully appreciate it as a player, but yeah, yeah, I'm sure, it goes a long yeah, way. I'm sure that I'm sure that players do not appreciate the thought that the coaches have for each one of them, um, you know, because they think they're just one of 12 or whatever and, you know, practice is done, practice is over. Okay. We're moving on. But yeah, it's great to hear that there's a lot of thought going into, you know, how to make those practices better and things like that. But I was also curious, um, you know, how you guys, do you guys use um, video to break down matches and analyze matches in any way? Yeah, we do. We, um, we normally will get like play site recordings of either mm -hmm. matches at home or away, and then mm -hmm. we'll, we'll review them after the fact. And do you use like tennis analytics? They do like, you know, they can break down, you know, shot selection, errors and things like that. Or is it just something you guys do on your own and you have your own measuring sticks? Yeah, I think uh, we maybe have used tennis analytics at, at certain times in the past at Duke. Um, we haven't this year. It's just like you said, we kind of use our own measuring sticks and um, pick about the pick apart the videos in our own ways. So TJ, let me ask you this question. This isn't on the list, but I'm I'm just curious. Uh, you know, there was a meme that went around a while back on April Fools where the ATP said they're gonna allow artificial intelligence to uh, coach the players at changeovers. <laughs> yeah. And so one of the players sits down on their bench and chat GPT says, hit it to their backhand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. You know, right? The 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 most common uh, coaching point for a player. But I, I watch as our boys, Scott and mine, get older, the the difference between the, the good players. We were at a national three this past weekend. The difference between the good players is becoming so small mm -hmm. that uh, I'll give you an example. One of the players he played, uh, when he would hit him out wide, that would give the player options for larger angles. And this player was a high, you know, a, a heavy topspin player. So when he started playing him to the middle, that player didn't have the option for the angles and it really bothered him. Yep. But you don't think about some of those little tiny changes. You know, we think, oh, hit it to their backhand or whatever. Don't hit it up the middle. 
But as, as these players get better and better, what are some of the coaching points you're giving to your players that are real tiny and minuscule coaching points that people probably don't even realize are, are happening? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and um, you know, I think there was kind of, I'll, I'll answer your, your direct question there. And, you know, I'll tell you one thing that, that we focus on is like uh, serve plus two patterns, right? Understanding where does your opponent like to serve? Where does he like to go with his first two shots or at least his first one shot? Where does he like to take second serve returns? Um, those are things where you can kind of understand what their tendencies are, what they like to do on a big point, and you can hedge for that. Um, and I think that, you know, there's certainly kind of to your informal question there, Robert, like, is there space for, you know, more analytics or like AI analytics in tennis? Uh, I would say yes. Like tennis, I think we're just scratching the surface of the numbers game. Um, I'm kind of fascinated by the work of Craig O'Shaughnessy. I've listened to some of his, um, you know, podcasts and I really like the way that he thinks about the game. And I think there's, um, there's room for, for more, um, analytics in tennis and, you know, as a player, for sure, you're, you're, like you said, you're the, the margins are so small that any competitive advantage that you can get, you need to go for. And for me, that's, that's definitely watching video and looking at opponents and trying to figure out what their tendencies are. And, and then, you know, that you need to take into account, but also ultimately you want your player to be the one who's the dictator out there on the court and, you know, ultimately playing their game. So you just kind of sprinkle in some um, opponent wisdom, so to speak, but ultimately you're trying to get them to, to, you know, row their boat or, you know, send their rocket ship off into the stratosphere. Um, so I think there's, I think there's a mix, but um, I'm definitely interested to see where data and tennis and where, where that goes in the next five to 10 years. Yeah. So, but give me some tangible examples of advice you've given players. Like the one I just gave, Hey, player is a heavy top spin likes angles. So hit up the middle, it takes the angles away. Sure. You mentioned um, they, they're serve plus one or two. They like to serve say on deuce side and down the T or out wide. Mm -hmm. So you know it's coming. I remember watching a documentary, and I, I can't remember. I think it was Pete Sampras playing Andre Agassi. And when Agassi would touch his eyebrow in a certain way, then he always served down the tee or something. Like little tiny, you know, tells. But what yeah. is, what's some of the, that advice you give players that the average fan would not even think was a big deal, but in a high-level match, it's a big deal? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, like you said, um, with the – the serve locations, like a, a lot of that is hedging towards what you think the opponent's favorite serve location is. Um, you know, another one is like, you just take an opponent's stroke. Let's say they have a, a great forehand, right? But you look closer at the tape and, and they have a really great forehand when they have time, but they have actually a pretty big backswing. So if you rush the ball to that forehand and you're playing on a fast indoors, a la Louisville, then, you know, you hit a hard ball cross court to the forehand. Um, maybe that neutralizes it. Right. So it's, yep. it's, it's, you know, especially at the college level, it's never so simple. Like, Oh, you just need to hit a million balls to the backhand. A lot of times it's like, no, you got to stretch the guy with an angle out to the forehand and then go hard to the backhand and then go, you know, again, angle to the forehand and come into the net because the guy doesn't like to pass with the forehand, um, you know, whatever. So I think that's I kind of, that. yeah, I love that level of detail. That's, yeah, yeah. that's good stuff. I mean, it, cause they again, Mine, my my son played a, a player this weekend that 
when when he would come to the net, the player was a poor passer. Right. He figured that out about four games in, and so he would come in on what I thought were unsmart un times to come in, but he won. And I said, after the match, I, man, why were you coming in on some of those balls right up the middle? He's like, well, he couldn't pass me. Right. Exactly. You know? Exactly. That's those little things are are so valuable. You just don't even think about, um, and and you also don't think about when you watch a high level match. I'm trying to stretch them out wide, wide, wide. Go to the you know, then go to the backhand and come hard. I, I literally was talking to a pro the other day, and they said if I had a player who took that big of a backswing, I'd just play super flat to their forehand, and they would be late every time. Mm -hmm. yep. yep. That little bit of detail people don't realize is happening on the court. I don't think. Totally. And like the same thing with the serves, right? Like sometimes there are a lot of big servers just on the surface, right? You see them, they hit it hard. They're big guys. And you're like, whoa, that guy's a great serve. And then you watch a two and a half hour match and you see like, all right, he served 85% of his serves to the T and he served 15% to the body and he served is none out wide. So you're like, all right, you know what? Or, or let's just say 80% T, 10% body and 10% wide. You're like, all right, well, I'm just going to sit on the T. And if he goes to the other spots, like, Hey, that's, you know, I'm not, I'm going to worry about that a fraction of the time. Right. Um, so just trying to, trying to, like you said, just um, get there in, in the finer details and, you know, find the margins where you can. Yeah. That, that, that's what it's about finding those tiny margins and, and exploiting them. But I, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk maybe about the recruiting process at Duke. And, um, you know, I know that you joined, uh, the, the team in August. So maybe that was sort of at the end of the recruiting period, but I'm curious, you know, sort of what your plans will be for the summer for recruiting and what, what, what do you guys do during the year? Um, I know, you know, you're involved with, you know, fall season and the spring team season. So it's, it's probably recruiting maybe, I'm not sure what percentage of, of the job it is, but how does, I guess what I'm trying to ask is how, how is recruiting um, handled throughout the year different mm -hmm. different uh, seasons have you know higher recruiting times and then you know fall spring maybe less so how, how do you guys yeah. deal with recruiting there um so i mean i i definitely as a volunteer you're not allowed to be involved in recruiting um so definitely can't like travel for the university or or recruit as as far as i'm aware um you know i think if the if the regulations ncaa has changed the regulations around um, assistant coaches. And I think next year, if I become full-time and on payroll, I will be allowed to recruit. Um, but just to speak generally uh, in terms of college recruiting and the cycles, I think from the during the school year, from early September till the end of May, a lot of the recruiting that college coaches do is either via on-campus visits, uh, recruiting visits, or you know via the phone. Um, and I think maybe there's a couple tournaments there during the year that coaches can attend um you know whether it's like orange bowl or clay courts or or winter or not clay courts because that's in the summer but winter nationals or easter bowl or something but um i think that's how coaching works during during the year recruiting works during the school year and then over the summer you know um coaches definitely they, they travel around and recruit both nationally and internationally and i think that's much more kind of recruiting season where you're getting to see potential recruits in the flesh and understanding how they play and um, doing that much more regularly. And, and what advice would you give to kids that are, I guess, wanting to be recruited? They're, 
you know, they're of the age where they can be recruited, which is I think is like after their what sophomore year they can be, have contact. Is that right? I believe so. Yeah. So, heard, so how, how, what advice do you have in general, just for for kids in the recruiting process in terms of, you know, how to get noticed, how to communicate with coaches, and and things like that. Sure. One thing I would say as a general piece is like know your identity. You know, know both your your mental identity and and how you, um, you know, want to be remembered as a competitor and how you want to. Um, you know, show how you want to put your your mental side on display, um, and then also know your tennis identity. And you know that way, as a as a you know, coaches want to. I think that's that's one way to sort of separate yourself because I think a lot of juniors that's kind of wishy washy at that stage in their career. Um, but if a kid comes out and he says, "Look, you know what? I'm not the tallest guy, but I swear I don't make any bad decisions out there on the tennis court." I'm really disciplined. Um, I love tennis. I really want to maximize my potential. I feel like I'm just scratching the surface here and pride myself on having a growth mindset. And, you know, when I'm in the match, just not showing my opponent any negativity or, you know, any weakness. And, you know, I, I trust in my game to develop, but, you know, at a baseline, at a foundational level, you know, my mind is something that really sets me apart. And, you know, similarly on the tennis side, just being like, you know, um, I'm a player who likes to, you know, look for forehands and, and run down a bunch of balls and be aggressive and, and come into the net when I can and really make guys move and, and play long points or whatever it may be. But just being clear on that, you know, I think and that shows college coaches that you have been thoughtful about your development. You're not just kind of going out there batting balls and that you've spent some time to think about how you can be most effective on the tennis court. Um, and, you know, I think as a, as a coach, like you're not looking for a fully baked product at 15 to 16 years old when you're starting to recruit a player, but you're probably, you're looking for the right trajectory, right? And you're looking for the tools that, you know, when put together at the right time can result in something that could be pretty special. So, you know, a lot of those too, just come down to like the controllables. Um, so, you know, the more that a player can be mentally tough and, um, you know, play with freedom in pressure situations and, um, you know, pride themselves in their fitness and, you know, show that they're cognizant and attentive towards injury prevention um, to show that they're, you know, coachable, um, that they're have good attitudes, that they're classy on the court, like as much things that you can, can, that are within your control that you can demonstrate a, you know, strong proficiency for that's a feather in your cap as a, as a recruit and, you know, a valuable, um, you know, characteristic for, or for, you know, an attractive characteristic for a college coach. Um, and I think that, you know, the misconception for junior players is like, Oh my God, I, you know, I need to win Kalamazoo. They need to see me. Like I gotta, I gotta win all these matches. I need to, play well and you know yeah it'd be great to play well and um it's it's great to to win matches but ultimately you need to be on the right track and no college coach is going to recruit you for one tournament right they're they're looking at a body of work ultimately they're going to have you for four years which is a long time and um you know as much as those little things that are are 
in the right spot. I think that just makes a, makes a candidate more attractive. Um, All right. So let me ask you this then. Um, we, we're talking about junior development, uh, which obviously our podcast heavily focuses on. Um, what do you think USTA can do better for junior tennis, uh, whether that's the development of it or the preparation of junior tennis players? You've been through the full process. You know, we've all watched the documentary. We watched you as a 12-year-old. Um, you, you played as a college player. I've been and seen you at a, a future tournament. Now you're a coach. What do you think USTA could do better so that the recruits you're recruiting are more attractive? You know, um, I, I personally, I can't speak to that. I think as, as, um, intelligently as, as, uh, you may like, because I'm a bit removed from what the USTA is doing right now. Um, but I would, I would say that I think the USTA is on the right track and, you know, if you look at the cohort of guys right now, 25 to 27 years old, um, you know, this is this is like when I was a junior and I was 12, 13, 14, the USDA was shaking things up all the time with their player development because they recognized like, hey, we're not developing players exactly the way they want to. And that's when they had, you know, Tommy Paul, Francis, um, Riley, um, all these really like obviously now unbelievable players practice at the USDA and, and train there. And um, so, I mean, I think that they're, they're definitely on the right track um, and, you know, they're, um, they're doing everything that, that they can. And I think they're always, they're looking to, to continue to push the cutting edge. Um, so just like unsure exactly what they're doing. Cause I haven't, I haven't been to the campus in a bit, but I know the USDA is putting a lot, you know, putting everything they have behind, the future of, of U.S. tennis um, and, you know, are, are probably moving in the right direction. Yeah, yeah I, think I, no, I, I, I agree with that, but I also want to also think that UTR should be given some um, props as well for what they're doing, you know, with these uh, PTT type tournaments. Mm -hmm. I think those are really good for development of sort of high level juniors that are transitioning to college and then college players that are, you know, looking to go on to the futures tour. I mean, the, the format of the tournaments gives these guys four or five guaranteed matches during the week, whereas a normal, say, ITF tournament, where you, you get just one match. So mm -hmm. I think U, UTR has got some really innovative um, things that they're doing that is also worthy of uh, recognition. I, I Yeah, I completely agree with that. And, you know, I think UTR is abundant in college tennis. Um, you know, you need to look no further than the college rankings where you'll see, you know, on, um, you know, ITA tennis or college tennis ranks where they'll put the sort of combined cumulative UTR of the starting lineup of a team. Um, and when guys are looking at other players, they're looking at the UTRs. Um, and I think that UTR is doing a lot of amazing things in terms of growing the game and making it more accessible and definitely getting, uh, getting, you know, finding that sort of middle ground um, between college and, and jumpstarting to the, to the pro tour. Um, so I, I completely agree with you, Scott. I think UTR deserves a lot of recognition for what they're doing and I hope they, they keep going in the direction that they're moving in. Yeah, absolutely. And so one of the, you know, we're getting maybe towards the end of this podcast. So wanted to talk a little bit about the season you guys had 
and um, the match you have coming up this weekend, you know, last year season wasn't maybe as up to to Duke standards, but this year sort of put them back on the the place where they should be. You know, that you guys lost just one conference match, um, had a really good tournament, made it to the finals. So maybe talk a little bit about going into the season, your expectations. And I have to say that, you know, probably the season that you've had so far has probably exceeded exceeded what you thought you guys might be, where you guys might be. Yeah, I mean, I think um, coming in, I, I didn't necessarily know what to expect, given it's a, a completely new group for me. I had 10 new faces to to meet and players to, to work with. Um, I know that, look, from the outset of the year, we our goal was to host NCAAs. Um, so we've accomplished that goal, and our goal was to win an ACC championship. And while that might have been a sizable goal, um, it wasn't – we certainly weren't far off. Um, so, I mean, we saw – we knew what we had within us at the beginning of the fall. And then I think it was just how do we tie it together? You know, how do we build throughout the season so that way we're playing our best tennis come tournament time? And everything that we do is sort of with that long-term view um, in, you know – in effect. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's been, it's been a, a good season, certainly not done yet. Um, you know, I think that we've, we're, we're really looking forward to the match against UVA on, on Saturday. I mean, that's a super tough team. Uh, I have a lot of respect for what Andres is doing over there at UVA and how his players compete and, um, how they act on the court and, uh, you know, really looking forward to the battle, but, I guess to, to answer your question, like we knew we, we had the talent level in us and it was more about like the day to day and putting it together and and, you know, kind of that that slow build, which we've seen throughout the season. I mean, beginning of the season was tough. We lost a lot of four, three matches tight Northwestern uh, Middle Tennessee. We lost four two. Harvard, we lost four three Kentucky. We lost four three. We were kind of right there at the finish line and, and struggling to push past. Um, and, you know, I think. Part of that was just like finding that freedom, freedom to play, and that like, hey, we, we got to go after it in the big moments because even if you lose, then you can sleep at night. Um, but you know, just overall, in the back of our mind, just building and building and building and stacking layers and stacking chips to where we're playing our best tennis at the end of the year, and um, I certainly think that we are. Yeah, and you mentioned UVA, and they've sort of been the thorn in your side. Like I say, the only team that's beat you in conference, and now you have to play them in the Sweet 16. And I think it's a good question because I think, you know, not just for, um, you know, what you guys have to deal with coming up, but, you know, when a junior player or a player has lost to a kid a couple of times, may not think he has, you know, what it takes to beat that guy. But, you know, I was listening to the podcast that uh, Ramsey just did with Cracked Racket. So if you want to hear more about uh, Duke season and the, the current matchup, go, go, listen, go listen to that. But, um, you know, so my question for you is, you know, I'm sorry. So, so Ramsey mentioned that, you know, it all starts with belief. So how, where does the belief come from that you guys can beat Virginia when they've beat you twice um, and now you need to put it together to beat them to go to the um, national championships? Yeah, I mean, it uh, comes from everyone, right? Everyone needs to believe that we can beat UVA in order for it to happen. But first and certainly foremost from the players, you know, and – Sure, uh, they've beaten us twice, but our players' belief is not dampened one bit. Um, and I think a lot of times it is playing a guy one, two times to realize, like, hey, you know what? There's there are holes there. Like, I can I can barge my way in. Uh, I need to do X, Y, Z, and I need to do it pretty darn well. 
but I can do that. And, you know, I think that's where a lot of times the belief comes from facing your opponent, right? Sometimes they're this mystical, you know, godlike character that, you know, um, you just shiver at the thought of them. Um, I try not to, but some, some do. And, uh, but then seeing them face to face, Hey, you know, they make the greats make errors too. And, um, I think just, yeah, you know, taking off the, the, you know, taking them, taking them down from, from the pedestal and just realizing like, Hey, they're, they're a tennis team too. Um, with their, they're just a group of guys just like us. And, you know, they do some things really, really well. Uh, a lot of things really, really well. And yeah. so do we, and Hey, we just need to do maybe these things better. And, and we sure as heck have a shot. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. that, and, 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 the, yeah. and the margins are so small in college tennis. And a lot of it has to come down to that doubles point, you know, um, you know, just give you an example, you know, you were there when, uh, at the ACC tournament, Duke, you guys beat Louisville four zero. And, uh, you know, one of the matches you guys won, you, you won, you won the, you won the doubles point, but that doubles point was, you know, five all in the third and in, in the tiebreaker on court three. And you were there. And, um, you know, if Louisville wins that, that match, then the, you know, then it's only three, one and the other three matches are competitive, but mm-hmm. you win the doubles point and the match is over at four zero. You don't really think about it. So it's like that's the sort of the, the margins are that small. Even a 4-0 match can be really tight. Yep. No, 100%. And that's kind of the it's kind of the beauty um, and the and the bitterness of college tennis. Um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's, it makes it exciting. Well, hey, Robert, do you want to uh, send TJ to get started on the fast feed? Yeah, that sounds great. So Scott wrote this first question. And I highlighted it in red because I wanted to be the one to ask it. And I think it's awesome. And you're not allowed to play to say, I love Duke. I'm going to pick Duke. I can't not pick Duke. So here's my question. If you were given one more year of eligibility to play college tennis and Duke was not an option, where would you go? Oh, man. I and thought you, you were going to say, say, I like Duke. Go I was going to say Duke, not even a question. Um, no, you can't. You got to pick somewhere. Oh, man. And you got to tell that us why. so tough. That is so tough. <laughs> Such a good question um, Scott has here. That's a great question. Um, I would say okay. UCLA. There you go. Why? Because I grew up uh, playing there at UCLA. I have a very uh, great relationship with Billy Martin. And, um, you know, I I love the blue and gold. Um, and, and I love the California sunshine. Hey, TJ, remind me of the player that was in um, 50,000 Balls that – was it DeGiulio that played at yep. UCLA? Joseph DeGiulio. Yep. I remember, Scott, do you remember when we met him when Everett and Luke were like seven? And yeah. So, so TJ, we were in, in Athens at the national championship, and UCLA was about to play. And uh, we walked up to the UCLA team because it was a rain delay. And uh, the boys were like, yeah, so my wife Sarah's here. And they were like, oh, it's – it's DeGiulio. It's DeGiulio. And so we, we told him, hey, can he, can our boys meet him? They saw him on a movie. And so somebody from the team went and got him. And he, they, when they, we, we could hear him when they told him, hey, these boys want to meet you. They saw him in the movie. He goes, really? <laughs> he couldn't believe it. That's amazing. That's amazing. I actually have one more for you, too. I would say Cal because uh, I, I, I love Chris Quinta and I've known Chris Quinta for a really long time. He's a phenomenal coach, and my mom went to Cal. So I would, uh, if I had one more year, you'd find me in the Pac-12. Okay, very good. 
Very good. Um, favorite tennis documentary other than 50,000 Balls? Um, I would say Unstrung. Yes. That's a great one. We love that one. And there's another Pac-12 guy, Clancy Shields, right? Yep, yep. Clancy's he's doing great things over at Arizona. Yep. I I guess I'm supposed to ask the next one. Next one. I'm I dropped the ball there. Uh, so your favorite non-sports podcast? You mentioned your favorite sports podcast. What's your favorite non-sports podcast? The the Huberman Lab. Um, that's Tell what us about that. I've never heard of it. Yeah, so it's um, Andrew Huberman. He's a professor of neurobiology and ophthalmology at Stanford. And he has a very um, popular podcast now. I'd say it's blown up over the, over the last 12 to 18 months um, about science-based and, and really like science journal literature-backed protocols to improve um, performance. And that could be sleep. It could be how to, you know, lose weight. It could be how to um, prevent injuries, uh, how to regulate your hormones, like really anything um, performance related, really cool. And, and he like, he makes it digestible for the average person. He definitely gets into the science, but he makes it digestible for the average person. Um, you guys should check it out. Check out the episodes on like skill learning and on how to use you know, failure and, and balance to improve, um, you know, accelerated skill development. Uh, it talks a lot about neuroplasticity. How can you change your brain um, to improve performance? Uh, all the stuff I find absolutely fascinating. Love it. Say, say it again. What, what's the name of the podcast? Huberman Lab, H-U-B-E-R-M-A-N Lab. We will link to it in the show notes. Um, sounds good. We'll put it on the list. Uh, something you've changed your mind about since you started coaching college tennis. Mm, something I've changed my mind about. Um, something I've changed my mind about is that uh, I would say I'm a lot harder on my players about how much sleep and recovery and eating and the the small details that uh, I didn't appreciate as much as a player. Love it. Okay, I love it. Yep, I'm always telling mine, go to bed, get a lot of sleep, take a nap. Exactly. Stop looking at your phone. <laughs> yes, I'm saying <laughs> that a lot. Me, you know, I used to literally, in college, I would like fall asleep to a Family Guy episode or something <laughs> and help me fall asleep. And then now I'm like, that was just terrible for me. That, that was, was just, terrible. I was just purposely interrupting my sleep in my REM cycle. Okay, so let me ask one that's not in the list, but I asked Ch Chat GPT if it knew who you were, and it does. Oh wow! It says you're a you're a notable tennis player and coach. Wow, and notable! I, I know that's pretty Chat good. You might be wrong there. <laughs> well, it is known <laughs> to be wrong every once in a while. And then it says uh, that you coach at Duke and uh -huh. played at Duke, so it goes on and on. So I asked it, give me a, a question that's. Sort of amusing and thought-provoking. So here's the question it gave. If TJ could play a doubles match with any person in history, who would you choose as your partner and why? Keep in mind they don't necessarily have to be good at tennis. <laughs> wow. Wow. That's an amazing, that's an amazing question. Um, if I could play a doubles match with anyone in the world. And they don't have I, to be good at tennis. Anybody. Yeah. I mean, um, rest in peace. But I, I would love Kobe Bryant as my doubles partner. I knew you were uh, going to say that. 
that would be that would be unbelievable. Me and the me and the Black Mamba on the court, I think, you know, would be would be be a pretty fierce duo. Well, speaking of basketball players who started tennis late, have you seen the video of Dwayne Wade starting to learn tennis? I haven't seen D Wade, but Dirk Nowitzki's been all over my Instagram. Can you imagine like, him at the I net? He should be tough at the net. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> tough, tough guy to lob. <laughs> lob, pass, whatever. I mean, his wingspan probably covers the whole court. But yeah. but I think about you need to see the video of Dwayne Wade for such an athlete. I always used to tell my my son that the the athleticism doesn't matter till you have the skill. Well, Dwayne Wade playing tennis is a proof of that. <laughs> no no offense. I mean, it's it's just right. tennis is such a skill based sport. You can be one of the best athletes in the world, but if you don't have the skill, it doesn't matter. Yeah. So All right, Scott, you're up. All right. Where do where does the Duke uh, tennis team like to eat when they're on the road? Where do you guys go go to restaurants? And we know what y'all are gonna say. Well, uh, I would say Firehouse and Jersey Mike's go to uh -huh. sub places. Uh, we love a good Outback meal or Carabas. God, I knew Chipotle was gonna be the answer. Look Chipotle, at that. Chipotle is certainly in there. After a loss, it's Chipotle and and get out of town. <laughs> love it. After a loss. Well, this is, as usual, it's awesome to have you on. Appreciate you, man. Guys, always, always great to connect with you, Scott and Robert. And, uh, you guys are the best. Love talking. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Hey, good luck this weekend against Virginia. Um, won't be there, but we'll be rooting for you. All right. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. We'll try to give them hell. All right. Let's go. All right, All right fellas. See, See ya. ya.